It's time for the Talent Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2, a nationwide leader in background checks and employment screening solutions. People G2 gives their clients access to the best human capital management and due diligence tools available. They are dedicated to helping their clients with all of their people-related decisions. To learn more, go to www.peopleg2.com. Talent Talk centers on the topics of talent recruitment and management, leadership development, company culture, and employee engagement. These are all timely topics for CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR professionals, and business leaders. We hope that as you tune in to listen each week, whether to the live broadcast or to the podcast on iTunes or iHeartRadio, that you hear something you can take away that will help you grow and impact your career in a positive way. And now, here's the host of the Talent Talk Radio Show, the founder and CEO of People G2, Chris Dyer. Good afternoon and welcome to Talent Talk. We're live. It's Tuesday. It's one o'clock for us right now. And we're excited to have a great show lined up for you. Uh, two spectacular guests. And whether you're listening live or maybe if you're tuning into the podcast, we turn it into after the fact. Either way, welcome and thank you for being a loyal listener. You know, if this is the first time you're here, uh, you know, a couple things, kind of why we why we have this show. Uh, you know, I have had so many wonderful conversations with people who inspire me, who motivate me, who mentor me, um, and, you know, but they happen at shows and on, on the phone and they were just between us. And so, uh, you know, years ago we decided, why don't we put this on the air? Why don't we have the same conversation as talk about cool things and, and how uh, talented people are, are, are being successful and how they're managing their talent. And of course, bringing that out to the, to anyone who wants to listen. Um, you know, there has been so many wonderful stories that have come out of these interviews over the years. I've put a lot of them in my first book, The Power of Company Culture. And yes, here comes the self-promotion. Tomorrow, my new book, Remote Work, launches. So I hope that you will go to Amazon and you will buy a copy. You will, you know, do all the things. And hopefully it will be helpful and impactful to you with all of your flexible work needs that are going on right now from fully remote to hybrid, whatever that looks like. So you know, we are live here every Tuesday, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. But, you know, if you're listening to us on or want to listen to us on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, just make sure you subscribe. That way you always know when a new episode is ready. Um, and so you don't have to even even think about it. And then uh, before we get to my uh, my guest today, don't forget we are live tweeting everything. So if you, something smart we say, we're definitely going to tweet that out. If we say something dumb, we probably will admit those. But um, we definitely will have links to profiles and books and anything that we think you might have wanted to jot down. We're trying to live tweet that right now and even submit questions and we try to feed them into the show if it's sent us uh, during the live show. All right, enough with all the business. My guest today, uh, our CEO and president at Project Success Inc., Clint, uh, Clint Pageant, and then uh, and Level 5 Associate Founder uh, Robert Mixon will join me after the commercial break. Uh, but let's go ahead and get started. As I mentioned, my first guest is Clint Pageant, CEO and president at Project Success Inc. He's also a Forbes book author uh, and host of the Conversation with Clinton M. Pageant podcast. So hopefully you'll check that out. But Clinton, welcome to the show today. Uh, thanks for having me, Chris. Appreciate it. Well, why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself, what's important for us to know about you, what you're passionate about, you know, uh, so that we can kind of kick this off. 
I'm passionate about people. And so what's really interesting is I'm an electrical engineer by training in Georgia Tech. Wanted to be an electrical engineer since the time I can remember, maybe eight or seven or eight years old. But then somewhere over my life transitioned into becoming a people person mm. and realized that people are the really the glue that holds projects together and holds teams together. And that's kind of my pain point or my passion point. Now, I think people could probably make some stereotypical judgments about engineers uh, being maybe just slightly more uh, talkative than a mathematician. Uh, so it, is that true? And are, are you just an anomaly in this sea of, of, of people who generally aren't, aren't people people uh, to start? Not that they're not people people in general, but you know, is that something you get a lot of? Is that just sort of a, a, just a bad stereotype? I don't think it's a bad stereotype, unfortunately. <laughs> I think it probably is a true stereotype. And if not, there's certainly some grains of salt of truth in there. I do think that the, the, the part of the brain that makes us really good at math and you know, logical issue solving maybe doesn't lend itself well to the people's soft skills at times, which uh, yeah. is kind of what I devoted my passion to is about helping one get to the other, right? Yeah. I noticed that you know, when I, a lot, many years ago when I got my uh, Scrum Master training, there's a really wide range of of people in the group. And here I was being the people person, right? And I'm, you know, and I had other people in there were like programmers and they were, you know, this was not their jam, but it was really fascinating to watch that when you have a good system and you have a really well thought out, you know, way in which we orchestrate and we move, suddenly those people who were more technical, more mathematical, maybe a little more introverted, uh, came out of their shells in a really specific way. And I think was like they knew what the roadmap was, right? They knew how do I get from point A to point B? I don't have to like make it up. I don't have to just be charming or, or, or whatever. So uh, do, do you find those sort of correlations sometimes between having good systems and maybe good people outcomes? I do. I do think it's it's also it can be, it can certainly be aided by having a good system and a good process. I think there are some innate skills that you have to build to be a good conversationalist and, make, mm-hmm. and become a good team member. I was talking to, I do a lot of project management work since you talked about kind of the agile world. And uh, one of the classes that I taught at Georgia Tech and exec ed program, at the end of the session, the lady gave me the badge of the least defensive waterfall guy she's ever met. <laughs> okay, so, <laughs> but uh, I was talking, so we, we talk in what we do with project work a lot about people because people, you know, software can help you with process, right? Microsoft Project can help you with process. It doesn't help you with the people side of things. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to a, a guy at Warner Brothers Pictures probably seven or eight years ago about our process. And he stopped me and he says, wait a minute, what is all, he said, I thought you were an engineer. And I said, I am. He said, what is all this touchy-feely people stuff? I'm like, well, last time I checked, touchy-feely people do projects. And so you have to handle the touchy-feely people stuff if you want to be successful. Well, I'm wondering, sort of, you know, given what the world that you live in, what you're sort of seeing for the, you know, getting back to work, getting back to normal, whatever that means. Uh, you know, my, my organization has been 100% remote since 2009. And so collaborating and brainstorming and figuring things out not in the same place is just normal for us, right? And it works for us. Uh, and I think a lot of people are like, well, we have to be in the same place in order to make this thing work. You know, if you're if you're making wine, you have to be in the vineyard. And if you're putting a plane together, you got to better be in the hangar. Uh, but there's probably a lot of gray area right in between. So, what are you sort of seeing for that 2020 to 2021 progression? Do you think a lot of people just try to get back to where we are? Will it be some sort of a mix? What are you seeing? I think it'll be a mix, Chris. I mean, you look at what people have said, like J.P. Morgan Chase. You know, they're very much about we're going to get back in the office. Others, I think Twitter and Facebook have basically said you can work from home forever if that's what you want to do. I think it'll be a mix. I think what's come out of the pandemic is if I see two benefits, 
One is that we now know that we don't have to go into the office sick. We can work from home successfully and not bring, you know, bring that, that contagion to everybody else in the office. Right. Uh, and the other one is that we have to get better at handling communication. And you know, I opened my podcast with the, the quote from George Bernard Shaw that the single biggest problem with communication is the illusion that it has taken place. <laughs> so the fact that you guys have been virtual for 11 years and have mastered that, that communication piece, I applaud you because I think a lot of organizations over the last year plus have really struggled with that. And that, you know, so I think to answer your question, I think it's going to be a mix. I do think that, as you pointed out, there are some jobs that require you be on site. You're not going to be an Amazon delivery driver from home, right? You're going to be at the warehouse and then be in your truck going places. You're not going to put a plane together unless you're at the Boeing facility in Seattle, right? Those things you have to be in place for. There are some jobs that we've known could be done remotely and probably some more we've learned now could be done remotely. And I think you're going to have a great majority of people that are that are going to be in the middle where maybe they're not, I don't, I, I kind of personally believe that the nine to five butts in seats Monday through Friday is gone for a lot of companies, a lot of people. But I do find that there's something organic that has to happen when we're face to face. You're not going to get when you're hundred percent remote. So I think even those folks that are able to work remotely long-term, there's going to be a day, a, month, a day a week in the office, two days a week, or maybe a two days a month, sometime where we come in and, and intermingle and co-mingle and have that social aspect that we need. Uh, and I think there's some business problem, uh, business positives that come out of that intermingling as well. Yeah, we learned that uh, once a year we needed to get together and that seems to fill up our bucket enough that having that time to, to be shoulder to shoulder with each other and do some trainings and have our holiday party is kind of all we need to keep that part connected. However, the second part is we actually had to undo this thought that you that you make your friends are at work, right? That your social life is work uh, and that you get all that social interaction at work. And so my people really value work-life balance. So being able to move their shifts around, being able to do the work when it's the right time for them and then get their social outlets somewhere else, right? right. So there's high respect, high uh, motivation and, and, and getting things done internally on our end. But there isn't a lot of like, we're going to go have a beer together afterwards, right? In, 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 but that has to kind of be retooled. What else are you sort of seeing maybe in the changing and in relationships as well with, with remote work? Well, I think that you've kind of hit it on the head. If, you, if you're not going to come together physically at any point in time, then you're going to have to find your social interactions remotely through other places. And I do think isolation has really been at the forefront of the last year and a half with people who maybe weren't used to being remote who got forced into that. I think there's a lot of loneliness that came out of that. So I think you have to figure out where am I going to get my physical contact? Because I think as human beings, we need and crave yeah. physical contact, whether that's a handshake, a hug, or just being face-to-face over a cup of coffee. I think those things matter. And if you're, if you're not going to ever come back to the office and you're never going to get those from your colleagues, then you're going to have to find it elsewhere, whether that's your next-door neighbor, your across-the-hall neighbor, or whatever that might be. But you're going to have to find those, or I think you're going to be awfully lonely. Yeah, and I mean, I've known lots of people, you know, prior to the pandemic who didn't feel that connected to their coworkers. And it was because they expected them to be like their friends and they really wasn't, you know, there wasn't really that connection there, but yet they respected them. It was a good job. And so I, I, I always back then told them, like, you don't need to be friends with them. Like, you need to get stuff done. You need to enjoy your job and be satisfied. Like, but, and when they did that kind of unprogrammed this thing that I'm supposed to go hang out with them after work, 
right? And then they put it somewhere else and suddenly they like their job. It was sort of a weird expectation I think some people have. Now, I don't think it's atypical, though. I think I mean, my expectation would be that if I hang out in an office with somebody five days a week, I'm going to find some people that I like to hang out with. And, right. and after work, going to have a beer or go bowling or whatever those things are, I'm going to have those relationships. But right. I don't think you're going to create long-term relationships on Zoom. So I think you're right. You had to find them somewhere else. Well, uh, you know, one of the things, too, that we figured out was, you know, there was a, can be a big difference in how we communicate. Uh, I'm wondering, you know, what, what is sort of your thought in the, you know, there's communication and there's conversation, right? And so how do those two things play together and are they the same? Well, I'm, I'm past 50, but in, for most of my life, I actually thought they were the same thing until I was researching a chapter for the book that came out in January. The chapter was called Communicate Like a Person, Not an Emoji. And I actually looked up the definition of conversation and communication, and they're actually two different things. Communication can be a one-way stream of information. I can communicate to you through an email, through a text message, through a post on Slack or Jira, where a conversation, by definition, is the oral exchange of information, ideas, or concepts. And the key word there being exchange. When you do a commu- when you communicate one way, one direction, there's a lot of bad things that can happen. Right? It can be misunderstood. People don't understand the tone in which you meant the email to go out. Mm-hmm. You, you know, it's it's misread. You you receive the email through the filter of I'm having a bad day that day, or the way that I define a word isn't the way that you define a word, right? So that's the text-based one-way communications I find is best served if it's yes/no answers, if it's kind of one-answer answers, if you know questions that can be answered in one word or less. Those are the better ways. But I think that you get a lot of back and forth if you just use text-based and conversation. You know, it forces us to have a dialogue. You know, what you and I are doing right now is having a conversation. Now, what we did prior to this was we communicated. You communicated to me through email about where to be and when to be in the link. Mm-hmm. And that was a one-way communication. And that was fantastic. But then if I'd had any questions, then I would have emailed you back or called you, right? So, I, you know, I think the thing that I like to use as an example, we all have played, at least probably most of us as kids, was a game called Telephone. And if you're not familiar with this game, basically four or five kids in a room and one kid whispers a secret to the second kid who then whispers it to the third kid and on down the line. And of course, the fun of the game is that what, what comes out of person number five's mouth is not remotely close to what person number one said. And that's because we were doing one-way communication, even though it was verbally, one-way communication each time. And so each person receives that information through their bias, their filter, the way they define terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they pass it. They, they kind of twist the message a bit, pass it on to the next person who twisted a bit. And it's no surprise that the message got mangled by the time it came out at the end. And that same thing happens in our in our world today if we're not careful, if we just do a lot of one-way communications, where what you do to clear both of those up, whether you're a kid playing telephone or today in, in our geographically dispersed organizations, is have a conversation where I get to look back at the first person and say, well, what do you mean by that word? Because this is, this is what that word means to me. And when you said turn left, do you mean like right now or at the next intersection, right? You ask these clarifying questions through a conversation that the message then gets consistent throughout. Yeah, and, and to kind of go back to that Scrum and Agile world, world this is what I love because I think communication is, hey, go build this software thing for me, right? But the conversation with the client is, okay, I've done a little bit of this. Is this what you wanted? Is this what you expected, right? And they say, like, oh, did I tell you yellow? I meant banana, right? Or like, you know, I want, and, and it's just these small little differences where you have to have those moments of, where are we at? And is this right? And and I think I kind of learned this uh, really important 
idea a few years back that kind of, I think, illustrates the difference as well on top of what you said between communication and conversation in that in that telephone game, it's all one way, right? It's just going from one per, one to two, two to three. But in, in real life, when one says something to two, two should stop and say, wait a minute, I, this is what I heard, right? Because exactly. what, I, what I learned was that it, the person hearing the communication, it's their job to understand the meaning. And we always think it's the person talking whose job it is to convey meaning properly. But that's nearly impossible, right? I mean, because of all of our filters and biases and things of what we're hearing and we think we hear. And so it's our job to be like, wait a minute, I think you just told me that this, you know, background needs to be yellow. Do you say you want yellow? Right. And then, no, well, no, I really want more of a banana. Oh, okay. You know, and so suddenly you get this alignment, right? And that's, I guess that's more of a conversation um, uh, that can be pretty powerful. Absolutely. I mean, I think that, the conversation is what clarifies the questions, right? And, and gets you the, the it really turn, makes the message succinct and make sure that you got it received. I think you're, you're spot on with, here's what I heard you say. Is that right? That's so powerful that you, you respond back that way. So going back to how we kind of started this conversation about engineers, that's one of the things that I think, and I'll, I'll point the finger to engineers because I am one, you know, we have a tendency to want to sit in a cubicle and do our design work, which we're quite happy with, right? Solving problems. And maybe go into that another next meeting or go get on that next Zoom call is probably something that we don't see as a lot of value add because that's time we're not being able to do the thing we really like and enjoy. But if we don't have that conversation, if we don't force ourselves to have that conversation, we really miss out on a lot. And I do think that a lot of us engineers want to be focused and don't want to come to those meetings and have those conversations. And what, you know, I'll, let's be honest, what I really want to do is check something off my to-do list that's saying it's done. And the easiest way that I can do that is if I email you, it's done. If I actually walk down the hallway in the old days or now pick up the phone and call you and say, hey, here's what I did. Is this what you wanted? I might find out that I'm not done and I've got two more things added to my to-do list. So yeah. my default position is probably going to be to email you and hope you never contact me again. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's a really great example because I think sometimes all of us, not just engine, not to pick on engineers today, but all of us can, can go down a rabbit hole of trying to solve the wrong problem. Sure. And, you know, I, I have a million work examples, but I have a buddy that just recently, his wife basically said, we need to f- replace this gate. And he thought it was because the latch was not working properly. So he spent all weekend devising an entirely new latch system only to find out, no, the gate has to be replaced because there was a too big of a space and the, their new dog was getting underneath it, right? And so the, the real problem wasn't being conveyed Right, um, and he assumed it was one one problem that I, if you kept the gate would be a problem, right? But I mean, that stuff happens in, in work all the time. It happens with our clients all the time, right? They t- sure. tell us I want one thing, and if you don't stop and be like, well, why? Tell me why that's important. Tell me why you need that, right? Is this because someone told you? Or because you know, otherwise we just we. I guess we're just solving issues that don't really need to be solved. <laughs> well, I think one of the most the best things you can do in those those conversations is ask the question: what What are you trying to achieve? Yeah. You know, and then the answer will come out when I'm trying to keep the dog in. Okay, well, then uh, now, now I understand what you're trying to achieve, and I can address it. Well, you know, when project work, what we call objectives is, you know, what, what we're trying to achieve and scope is what you do to achieve it. Now I understand the objective. Now I can build the scope into it. And so I do think a lot of us, we start with scope. Like, here's what I want to do, and we want to tackle the problem. And, and you're, to your point, we're not even sure what the problem is yet. Right. And I, I can't tell you how many times I thought I totally knew what my scope of the project was. And I thought I had articulated it perfectly to the vendor. 
only to have them get working halfway through. And I went, oh, wait a minute. There's this and there's that. And I didn't even think about this other thing. And then, you know, oh, and I've been on three of my competitors' websites and they have a way cooler way to do it than I had even imagined. And suddenly it all changes. I mean, it's just, oh, anyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think working together is, 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 it's the, really the fundamental part of, of, of us being successful as, as coworkers. So are there certain things that you've sort of picked out, identified that maybe make people successful in working together and developing those relationships with coworkers? I really do. I think whether you're face-to-face, which is always my preference, or through Zoom or remote, whatever, what you have to do is you have to listen. You, know, you have two ears and one mouth. You should use them in that ratio. You should listen more than you talk. The other one to me is when I'm talking to you, put my cell phone down, look you in the eye, whether, whether, whatever, do Zoom or whatever, and let you know that I'm in the moment. I'm actually engaged with you. One of the one of my pet peeves is when I'm having a conversation with somebody and they stop talking to me and look down at their phone and but like, wait a minute, do I not matter? Why am I not? Why am I even in this room with you then? If that's, I'll just text you. If that's if that's where I am on the pecking order. So listen more than you talk. You know, be involved. Be be really engaged in the moment, and go into the conversation not thinking you have to change that person's mind. Just understanding they have an opinion that is valid to them, and you need to recognize that. Doesn't mean you agree with it. You just have to recognize that their opinion is valid to them and you're not trying to change their mind necessarily, but that's a conversation. And I think if you do those three things, we're going to be much better off on project teams or frankly, in, in the political scheme that we're in today. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you know, one of the challenges that we've seen uh, organizations have when they went remote, whether it's by choice or, or by mandate uh, was that they continue to operate in the same way that they were doing it before. And so you know, what went from having little one-on-ones and walking around an office and talking turned into one-on-ones that were 30 minutes long and an hour long. And so suddenly you spend your whole day having individual conversations and have no time to work, right? I think which really can drag down things like Zoom and Google Chat or whatever. And, I, you know, and it might make us long for, well, we should just get back to the office and have face-to-face conversations. And so I kind of want to get your thoughts on that, you know, but also at the same time share with you, we just undid all one-on-ones, right? Almost all one-on-ones are gone. We turned them all into these team and group conversations so we could move information quickly, get lots of buy-in, lots of thoughts, lots of you know, conversation going in small groups. Um, and that worked for us to be able to sustain that. But, but it wasn't sustainable on the one-on-one. So where do you think that kind of, I mean, you, you, you mentioned you think things are going to go back to a mixed you know, system. We can't always be together. Uh, and yep. it sounds like in that system, we're going to be part together and part in the office. So what, what does good communication maybe look like in your eyes? I think that, you know, the situation you described is I'm glad it's working for you. I, I'm, you know, one of the things that we see happen that's missing today, that's not happening even in, in, in Zoom is the organic conversation that happens as you bump into somebody on the way to get coffee, or on the way to the restroom, or on the way to lunch, and you sit down at the lunch table with them. These conversations that they just come up organically are never going to be replicated in Zoom, especially not if you never do one-on-one. If it's always just group talk, then it's going to be to solve a problem, which is exactly what the Zoom call is for. But what we find is those conversations we have establish relationships that then allow me to rely on this, this person I never actually see face-to-face, but I'm, I know I can rely on them to do their work because we've established a relationship together based on that conversation we had at lunch that day or the coffee we had that morning at the, at the meeting. Right. So, and then, and there's a conversations that will bubble up. Hey, what'd you do this weekend? And before you know it, you're talking about something that helps you with a project. 
that you're not even, that's not even the person you're working with it on it. These, I think these are really powerful conversations that don't happen. You know, there's an article I read about, I guess, six months ago now that talked about some of the most powerful companies in Silicon Valley wouldn't exist today except for a serendipitous meeting at a Starbucks. And so if we never actually run into each other, if we, if we really stay focused only on the topic at hand, 100%, I, I'm, I, I'm concerned that those organic, yeah. powerful conversations won't happen. Well, you can't get bump in meetings at Starbucks at the office. I will give you that argument. That's back. true. That's true. Uh, <laughs> and I would say that's what allowed me with the remote work to work anywhere and to have, you know, way more of those sort of outside of the organization meetings, which spark more innovation, more fresh perspectives, right? Um, but if you ever need a, a few tips on how to create some of those things you you said you're not sure it can happen. We've actually got a few little tricks that help us do all of that. So oh, cool. uh, it's going to be really interesting to see how people can continue to evolve. I mean, we did not figure all this out in a year. You know, this was two or three years of us experimenting and figuring things out till we finally got to the right place that it started to work, right? To, that it could be on par with, with uh, being on one place. And for us, it actually got better, right? Because we were actually lazy in the office, very lazy about communication, very lazy about making sure people were involved and brought up to speak because we thought, well, they're all right here. Don't they know, you know? And, <laughs> and so anyways, uh, you know, Clint, you've really given us a, a great deal to think about today. And I really appreciate you being here on the show. Uh, most important question, how can people find out about you and find out more about you or contact you if they're interested in working with you or checking out your book and all of that? Well, I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn at Clint Paget. You can reach me through projectsuccess.com or clintonandpaget.com. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate our conversation today. Hopefully we can have you come back at some point and give us an update on all the awesome stuff that you're doing. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate you having me. All right. Our next guest uh, will be up uh, just after this quick commercial break. Imagine buying a newspaper and discovering that the news you're reading is six months old. There isn't much that stays the same for six months. And the same thing goes for background checks. In a time when so much outdated information is being passed around, it's good to know that People G2 offers something different. At People G2, we provide today's intelligence, not yesterday's news. Our value-added approach offers you a fully FCRA-compliant solution that includes up-to-the-minute information. By combining industry-leading technology with old-school human investigation, People G2 is able to give you information that is accurate right now, delivered quickly to our online system or integrated with your HR system. So ask yourself, are you comfortable working with old news or are you ready for a different kind of background check company? Visit PeopleG2.com or call 800-630-2880. That's 800-630-2880 or PeopleG2.com. Welcome back to the Talent Talk radio show. In case you missed my first guest, Clint Pageant, you can listen to his interview as well as this one or subscribe to, you know, check out all the other episodes we've had on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify. I mean, wherever there's a podcast, we're probably there. Just find the one you like and subscribe. That's what we need. Uh, and don't forget to go to talenttalkradio.com. You can find all the episodes there. You can subscribe there if you don't use one of those other platforms. And your last reminder, don't forget to go and uh, pick up my new book, which comes out today, uh, Remote Work on, on Amazon with my co-author, Kim Shepard. All right. My next guest is a senior executive leader and founding partner at Level 5 Associates, LLC. Uh, please welcome uh, Robert Mixon. Robert, thanks for being on the show today. Hey, thanks, Chris. It's great to be here. Why don't you tell them a little bit about yourself? What's important for us to know about you 
uh, and, and what you're passionate about with work. Well, I've been privileged throughout my journey to uh, have been a soldier for 33 years, was promoted to the to senior ranks, probably beyond my capabilities at some points in time. But anyway, I was fortunate to be a general officer and then uh, retired about 13 years ago, went into a manufacturing company uh, and, and then another organization in the manufacturing role, but a larger scale as a, as a nonprofit. And then my dream was to uh, have my own company and uh, help other leaders, organizations uh, grow based on what I had learned. Uh, through a lot of mistakes is what I learned about life and leadership. Well, we always like uh, having uh, some senior leaders from the, from the military on the show. We've had some pretty good notable people and there's always this kind of great lessons. And I, I think people get a really uh, bad understanding of how military leadership works and chain of command works and how, uh, I mean, I was even surprised when we were doing research for my, my, my book, we said, who's the best at training people remotely and the answer we kept getting back was the United States Marine Corps, that they were excellent at training people, you know, away from something really big they were going to have to later do, come together and execute and do something that they were really good at. It wasn't a company. It wasn't Google. It wasn't any, it was, it was a Marine Corps. So, you know, what, what sort of your uh, leadership journey been like, you know, since you were, I guess, sort of entered into West Point back in uh, what, 1970? Right. Yeah, I entered uh, West Point in 1st July, 1970 a 17-year-old uh, high school graduate, two, two weeks out of high school, and uh, went from growing up in Georgia, North Carolina, to uh, what they call the plane, the parade field at West Point, with uh, 1,399 other young men from around the world. In those days, it was all male. Entered what was going to be a crucible for me. Uh, I certainly knew it was a strange place. And people were, you know, acting, um, as you would say, pretty directly in helping uh, me and my classmates become soldiers or understand the culture of soldiering. Uh, It was a tough tough road to hope. And it was tough because uh, of the environment there, but also because of the environment in our nation. You know, we were a nation in crisis uh, in the late 60s and early 70s. We're a nation in crisis now, but it's not the first time. And, um, you know, the Civil War had, I'm sorry, the Vietnam War had divided them. Uh, pretty severely. So I was on a path to being a soldier, and yet in a generation where the military had largely been blamed for much of the policy in Vietnam, it was incorrect. But that's what happened. And as a result, uh, I think what it did was, in my class of, of, uh, at West Point, we grew closer together. We became much more of a band of brothers, to quote the term, than uh, we might have otherwise. And then my journey through the military was one of of ups and downs and highs and lows, like most of us in life, where I learned to be a, a leader, a caring leader, by being around other caring leaders. And the, the military has somewhat of a, I think, label as being very directive, and sometimes we have to be. But it was also inclusive in many ways, uh, inclusive of people and, and increasingly so uh, on point for the nation in terms of social change in many ways. So uh, once I came into the army and was around men and women that I admired and respected. I wanted to stay around those men and women because I felt as though I belonged. And so that kept me in the army along the way. And, and my family uh, supported me in the effort, uh, highs and lows. And I was privileged to, uh, to serve in the capacity, like I said, for, for 33 years in leadership capacities where I was responsible for a whole lot of the people 
And uh, I took it very seriously. So I imagine along the way, you uh, probably met some really key people that impacted you. And I'm sure being in in the service for as long as you are, that you were continued to be a student of leadership. I mean, it would be uh, completely out of character of any of the people I've met who who, it seems like they are uh, students uh, in that way. So are there some particular heroes that maybe you you could identify for us and, and why you feel that way? Yeah, I'll talk about two. One military and one not. My military hero I'll talk about briefly is General Colin Powell, who is on his pictures on the wall behind me there, my boss. And uh, I was privileged to be on his personal staff when he was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And as Jim uh, Maxwell talks about, or John C. Maxwell talks about in uh, Level 5 Leadership, you know, General Colin Powell is a Level 5 leader. Uh, he represented, uh, you know, the term personhood uh, that Maxwell uses. You know, people follow you because of who you are and what you represent. General Colin Powell was that person. Uh, his personhood was amazing. And we wanted to be with him and to do what he thought we should do. Uh, give him the best advice, give him the best, uh, because we wanted to. My other hero is my mom. Hi, mom. She's uh, almost 90 now and the matriarch of our family. Uh, she raised the six of us, I'm the oldest of six. Uh, in, in some pretty ar- arduous conditions, not, not you know, terribly arduous and I guess you would say financially or socially per se, but tough, tough conditions, tough times. And she was always resilient and is to this day. She always gave us great advice, even though we chose not to pay attention to it. And she was there. She was there. So I think those two people represent heroes in, in my book because of who they are and what they represent. Yeah, and uh, and usually I think you mentioned sort of really just two distinctly different types of leaders, and and two for different reasons, and yet just as impactful, I think. And uh, usually those people can kind of give us a, you know, a, a pretty big, uh, you know, reflection on what's important in leadership uh, and what we should be thinking about. I know you sort of have these this big sick big six uh, leadership principles. Could you maybe kind of break those down for us so maybe we could better identify, you know, who who we should be considering to be our best leaders? Yes, I uh, developed the big six principles uh, as a guide towards uh, to leadership and the journey that we're all on. And uh, I'll summarize it for you, Chris, uh, briefly here. The first one is called set the azimuth. And I will tell you, 90% of the people I deal with uh, don't know what an azimuth is. But I harvested it from the military because essentially it captures the idea of the cardinal direction of both yourself and your organization. We all need to set the azimuth of what's our mission? What's the intent? What's the vision in that mission? Uh, what's our, what are our beliefs, our values? And what's our culture? What are the behaviors that represent those? And those four components of setting the azimuth are the, one of the, the first of the big six principles that uh, I seek to live by and help others learn to, uh, to implement. I believe in practical tools. I'm not very esoteric. If we want to talk about the right brain, left brain, I'm not the right guy. I believe in tools and setting the azimuth consists of specific tools, such as writing your personal mission statement. I think everyone, every leader should have a personal mission statement. Mine's right beside me here. And I look at it every day. Who am I? What do I do? Why do I do it? Just as every organization should have a mission statement. The second component of the big six is listen. As my hero, my mom, used to tell us many, many times, you know, God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. 
pay much attention to it. But over time, it dawned on me that listening is a leadership requirement. Uh, the best listeners, whether where they are on their stages of levels one through five, as Mac talks about, uh, and level five leadership is the name of my company, so I, I believe in this journey. Uh, listening is a skill, and it it's, you have to develop it and nurture it. And many of us don't really follow the Steve Covey uh, guidance here either. Of, you know, are you listening with the intent to understand, or are you listening with the intent to reply? Ninety percent of us, I think, are listening with the intent to reply, and therefore we are not really uh, leaders who are seeking to listen as as well as we could. And so there are some tools you can employ to become a more effective listener. And one of my favorites is the backbreak. You know, it's the old adage about, I don't know what I told you to tell me what you heard kind of uh, approach. Uh, I would probably still have tanks wandering around forests of Germany uh, where they're not a fuel constraint because I would give them some guidance that I thought was great. And they'd, I'd say, oh, you got, all got this. Yes, sir, we got it. And then they'd all move out and go somewhere else, a different direction or opposite direction. It's very hard to stop a 64-ton tank when it's going the wrong direction. So listening is a skill you have to nurture and develop every day. The third principle is trust and empower. You know, if we, we have to, to trust those that we serve as a leader, and we have to empower them to manifest that trust. It has to be deliberate. Uh, you can't simply say it. You have to do it. Uh, and there are ways you can do that, tools for your toolbox. The fourth principle is do the right thing when no one's looking. That sounds very easy, uh, very easy. As we say in the Pentagon, that briefs well. Well, it's a whole lot harder than briefs. And walking that talk is where leadership really lives. The fifth principle is when in charge, take charge. That's not being loud. That's not being Patton-esque per se. Uh, although he was a great leader in many ways at that point in time. Really, being in, when in charge, take charge is being the calm and the chaos. It's being able to be a good, bad news taker. Uh, to understand the first report is probably wrong and to learn how to do that. And the sixth principle is balance the personal and professional. It's not about time. Work-life balance is not about time. It's about energy and focusing your energy on what matters to you and nurturing the four batteries that we have inside us, the physical, the emotional, the spiritual, the mental, in ourselves and in others so that we have that sense of balance in our life. You know, and, and, and those, uh, those are things that you've said them in, in, in some of them in different ways. In some ways, uh, I've heard them before. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, doing the right thing when no one's looking is uh, my definition of integrity, right? I mean, that's pretty, pretty sound. But I am sort of wondering, you, you, know, you mentioned uh, previously about Colin Powell being a you know, level five leader. So is there a difference in a level five leader in into what you mentioned in those big six? Are they doing something more, something different? Um, or is it just that they're actually doing all six at the same time, right? So what makes a level five uh, person? A level five leader, as I mentioned earlier, has that quality of personhood. By employing the big six principles, you really implement your personhood and affect others. You know, leadership's about influence. It's about being the person that others want to be like. And the big six principles are really based on a, a foundation of humility. General Powell was a humble leader. He was the leader, but it wasn't about him. It was about us. And think about it as you approach your leadership responsibilities. Is it about us? It should be about us. 
one of the things I tell people to do is a tool with a toolbox. I said, take I and me out of your emails and text. Hang them out. Only put it back in one exception and put it back in then when something's screwed up. Then I got this. When things are working well, we are we're kicking it. Proud of all of you. When things are not going well, I got it. And that's where I think the big six principles nurture that sense of servant leadership. Yeah, I mean, you can hear it in great leaders' words, right? When they something good happens and they talk about their team, and they talk about the people that brought that together, even though everyone knows they were probably very instrumental in it being a success, right? They're celebrating those successes of, of the people that were there and, and, and doing the tough work. And, and this was very much a group thing, right? And yet, to your point, when, when things go bad, they stand up and say, I'll take the heat. I'll, I will, I'll bear the brunt of this and I'll make it right. You know, both things are actually hard. <laughs> it's oh, hard not to not to want to stand up and say, "I did it." You know, and this is, of course, I led this team. I it was hard work. I mean, I made it happen. And you know, and it's hard not to, you know, want to slink away when bad things happen and people want to get mad and point fingers. So, you know, these these are these are things that uh, I believe you know people have to practice. Uh, and maybe there's some innateness in there, and maybe some something they learn early on, but you know, we, we do a lot to get our leaders to be part-time leaders to start, to give them practice leading in a smaller, safer, less compact, less scary way, right? So they can get it right and maybe screw it up a little bit and get some, you know, encouragement and some adjustment before, you know, we don't take them from graduating from West Point to you're now in charge of an entire brigade, right? Where there's got to be something in between there. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, the, we, in, the, in the Army, we say you crawl, then you walk, then you run. Mm-hmm. In leadership, I believe that's also true. You know, we, we have to nurture leaders and develop them. And soldiers, in many cases, uh, join the Army and then become leaders at some point. They become sergeants, non-commissioned officers or officers. And that's a big leap. That's a big leap from being one of the guys and gals to being right. the leader. And we have to help them understand what that represents and then reinforce it when they practice it or help them understand when they don't and how they need or we can uh, correct it, you know, how we can adjust in this journey. It's not a linear progression either. There are fits and starts in the military career, in corporate career. uh, There are going to be times when you tread water. Yeah. And I don't think people can underestimate how hard it is to go from being one of the guys or gals or whatever and to suddenly being in a leadership position, especially if you're being now a leader with those people that you know, that you have been uh, in that setting with. Remember, I graduated high school. Uh, I, I had a, an injury, and, and so I didn't take, I didn't go and pl- continue playing water polo. And they asked me to come back and be the assistant coach. And I go, ah, sure, that'll be fun. Did that, loved it. You know, it was not a big deal because I was the assistant. And then the coach quit, and they said, now we'd like you to be the head coach of the swim team. And so I went in less than, you know, nine months' time. I went from being there person there was in, you know, practicing with was there, uh, you know, on a teammate with to now I'm in charge of everyone. And it was like, it was a very strange thing. Try to have to figure out how do I exude authority and be a leader when like just a few months ago, I was goofing off with them and being, you know, just a teammate and want to be successful and want to have a good outcome and what, you know, all those things. And I, I certainly have had friends in the military that have given those examples, right? They suddenly have gone from one to the other. And it was so tough for them. They even have said that was the toughest thing, not, not the next three things that came after that that should have been tougher. 
Yeah, it's just a very difficult transition. And, and young leaders or emerging leaders need a lot of help and support when they make that transition, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to, to being a person in charge. When in charge, take charge. Uh, you know, how do you take charge? Well, one of the key tools you have to uh, implement or understand and implement in taking charge is being responsible. The uh, accountability that comes with responsibility. Now, the highest form of accountability is mutual accountability, but leadership accountability is certainly uh, up there in the in the in the top two in terms of how you transition from being a member of a team to being the leader. Yeah, uh, the responsibility and accountability have to be uh, really upfront. You know, I help leaders develop that personal mission statement we talked about earlier and then develop a personal leadership philosophy from that mission statement that really states who am I and what do I represent? And then give that to your team members to indicate to them, hey, this is now my role as a leader of this organization. And this is what you can expect from me. And this is what I expect from you. Well, I know in your your book, We're All In, the journey to a world-class culture uh, has been a big success. And it sounds like a lot of the things you talked about today, I'm sure are in there. Uh, that readers have really enjoyed it. But I understand you have a new book coming out uh, or just came out that just came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, who saw this coming? Uh, now what to do? Uh, can can maybe talk about what people can expect in, in your new book? Yes, it's a, it's an ebook and uh, you can access it on my website, www.level5associates.com. You spell out the five. Uh, essentially, it's a it's a description of how to apply the big six or some tools for application of the big six to adapt the, the, to the world we're in. Uh, we are in, you know, with historic times. We, we've said that you know, thousands of times in the last 18 months. We truly are in historic times. And as leaders, we've got to adapt to the times that we're in. We can't harken back to the times that we thought we once were or we wanted it to be way back in the day. It's not going to come back. Uh, we are a changed world now. And applying the big six is perhaps, I think, in many ways more challenging than it's ever been. Because the, the hybrid world that we're leading, uh, that we're members of, has some different demands on us. And so the book is about application of the big six in the world we're in and how to do it. You know, how do we apply those big six principles? Yeah, yeah. And it, it sounds like the principles are, are stay the same, but the environment keeps changing, right? <laughs> I think so, Chris. I don't think the big six uh, have changed at all. I think the, the, the fundamentals of leadership blocking and tackling haven't changed. Yeah. It's how we apply those principles every day. What do you think has kind of been the biggest change, uh, whether it's in the world of, of the military, in the world of just leadership in general? I mean, as you mentioned, when 1970, it was men only, right, in, in West Point. And so uh, that's a big change. Um, uh, there's been a lot of other cultural and significant changes in our country, in our world. Where, where do you see the kind of the biggest change? I, I'll leave it to you, good or bad. Uh, that you kind of see that maybe you wouldn't have ever even uh, believed if someone would have told you that as you graduated West Point? Well, I grew up in really what I call a culture of compliance, uh, where we were highly educated in doing what we were told to do. doing mm-hmm. it, And that really is a directive type of culture, where we comply with orders and instructions. Uh, I think now we're in a culture of commitment where we lead through a greater sense of influence and buy-in, where we work towards a what I call a level five culture, just as there's five levels of leadership that Maxwell talks about. 
In my book, We're All In, I talk about five levels of culture uh, because I was just thinking five was a cool number, but there are indeed levels of culture. And the we're all in culture is the culture of commitment that we as leaders need to nurture and create that culture today and tomorrow and next week and next week. But it's, it's not easy or simple. If it was, anyone could do it. Really appreciate uh, you uh, being on the show today uh, and sharing uh, you know, your lessons. I think uh, you know, sometimes we have people on here that have been a success and maybe it's out of accident. I think you've been a success out of you know, hard work and, uh, you know, continuing to learn and to get better and, and to be influenced by, you know, important, smart people. And I, I noticed that in, in a lot of the great people we have on this show that they, uh, they're not, uh, they're not so brazen to say that they know it all. And I think it, it, it came through here today. So, uh, thanks, you know. Chris. I, I learned the big six by screwing them up. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Humility is always important. Well, how can people, I know you kind of mentioned earlier, but maybe go ahead and give it to everyone again. How can people get a hold of you if they're interested in finding out more about you uh, and working with you and your organization? Yeah, my, my company's Level 5 Associates, and our website is www.level5associates.com. There you will find a snapshot of, of who we are and what we represent. It's basically, uh, it's basically me, and, and I have an assistant, a couple of folks help on occasion, but uh, it's, not a, it's not a large entity but we're very personalized and we focus on, you know, what do, what are your goals? What do you want to achieve and how can we do that together individually and as teams and as an organization? Well, great. Uh, thank you again so much for being on the show. We'd love to have you come back at some point and give us an update uh, on everything you're doing. Um, and uh, to everyone out there, thank you for tuning in. Uh, hopefully you've yeah, learned thanks, something. Chris. Yeah. Hopefully everyone's learned something they can, take back and using their own career in a positive way. I'm sure I know I have in, in talking to both our guests today. So until next time, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Talent Talk Radio brought to you by People G2. 